A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Welcome to all of our new and returning listeners. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and you're listening to a Deeper Look podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you. This year, we're focusing on humanitarian crisis and emergency response, and today we're going to discuss food security in crisis situations. I'm fortunate to have Matt Nams, one of the U.S. government's senior experts on issues of food security and food aid, with me today. Matt is the acting director of USAID's Office of Food for Peace, which is the U.S. government's lead in addressing food insecurity worldwide in both emergency and development situations. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. I'm glad to be here and excited to get into our uh, discussion today. I am too. I have so many questions to ask. First, let me just say a, a bit about Matt. Matt has worked on food issues at USAID for over 17 years. He started in Indonesia, where he oversaw development and emergency food assistance programs. In 2005, you were working on the response to the tsunami in Asia. Since then, you've been involved in responses to other natural disasters. Matt's also worked on health and HIV prevention programs and managed energy and water infrastructure programs in conflict settings such as Afghanistan. So he's one of those people who brings experience from both the development side and the humanitarian side, which is a great combination and and provides a really interesting perspective on the kinds of questions that we'll be discussing today. Since January 2017, Matt has held the position of acting director in the Food for Peace office at USAID. So let me jump in with a question to start the conversation. Can you give us a sense of your perspective on how the world is doing in addressing food insecurity in crisis situations? I do think it's important to talk about where we are right now in the world. How's the world doing, you right. know, food security wise? And unfortunately, the answer is we're not doing so good. The, the world is actually trending in a negative direction. So to put it another way, you know, since the Millennium Challenge goals and all of these things the UN was pushing on food security and the number of hungry people in the world, we, the global community, were actually doing very, very well. Every year, the number of hungry people was reducing. I think there were a lot of reasons for this increase of, of incomes and increase of trade. But the recent UN report that came out, the state of food security in the world, looking at 2016 and forward, after more than 10 years of a downward trend, a reduction of, of, of people who were food insecure, has now seen that go the other way. Uh-huh. In fact, in 16, we saw an increase in the number of food insecurity. The UN, the food organizations were reporting a reversal of this more than a decade trend of people being food insecure. And is that primarily because of man-made complex emergencies, or is it more natural disasters driven by things like climate change? Climate change is a factor in this, but the major reason in this is primarily totally conflict and uh-huh. a, you know, man-made uh-huh. conflict, uh-huh. You know, underline of man in this case. Uh-huh. And in 17, what we saw was an unprecedented level of food insecurity in the world 
So we have South Sudan, Nigeria, Somalia, and Yemen, where we were in famine in South Sudan, mm -hmm. or on the brink of famine in those three places. So we've heard a lot in the last year about the four famines. Now what you're saying is there was one declared famine in South Sudan. Correct. And then the other three countries, which are Somalia, Nigeria, Nigeria and, Yemen. and Yemen, are on the brink of famine. Exactly. So 2017 was unprecedented level since World War II as far as the number of highly food insecure people. As we turn the corner in 2018, we're not seeing very much of a decline on any of this. The good news is parts of Southern Africa are seeing some more rain. And so the levels attributed to El Nino and other factors mm -hmm. are looking better. When we talk about food insecurity in the world, we have the international phase classification. You look at a situation on many given factors and you're able to say on a scale of one to five, one meaning no food insecurity to five, the bad word famine, the F word mm -hmm. in, in what we do. And if we look at the world, we're seeing more groups of people from three go to four or from two go to three. Uh -huh. So especially in these four areas, we're seeing an intensification of the need. So if we were to look at what's happening in 18 in these situations, the conflict is increasing and the populations under siege, their ability to actually survive is being reduced. So in those places, South Sudan especially, where we did have famine, the real possibility exists that we could be going into famine again in some of those areas. What is the difference between the international community declaring that a country is experiencing famine versus being on the brink of famine or being highly food insecure. Is there a real difference? There is. It's unfortunate, but over time, even back since 1984, I think probably our listeners will, will remember the, the 84 famine in Ethiopia led the community uh, around food security to really develop hard and fast definitions on what constitutes a famine. So when we use or start using the word famine or brink of famine, it's based on a very intense scientific measuring on what this constitutes. And what that is, is basically three categories. 20% of, of a given defined population are having difficulty in accessing sufficient food for their daily caloric need. Uh -huh. So they're under a certain calorie level per day. Right, that's 20%, let's say, of a community. Is that 2,000 calories per day? It's 2,100 kilocalories per day uh -huh. is the standard. So if 20% if of a population in a given village cannot actually access that amount of calories, that is one factor towards a famine. Mm -hmm. The other one is that 30% of the children, of the population under five, are acutely malnourished. Uh -huh. So the wasting measure, most commonly measured through the middle upper arm right. circumference measure that maybe you've seen, maybe our audience is familiar with the UNICEF and other red, yellow, green. Right, the body mass index Correct. measure. Mm -hmm. So 30% of the children are in a severe or uh, acutely malnourished situation and two deaths per day per 10,000 people. Uh -huh. in a given population uh -huh. attributed to lack of food. Mm -hmm. All three of these have to exist in a given population for there to be a famine declaration. And it has to be data that is attributed through credible and accepted practices of data collection. So in certain cases where we don't have hard and fast data, the community then will not do a famine declaration. What this leads the community to believe is that sometimes it's a very conservative definition 
unless we have all three of these indicators, we will not do famine, which means that there could be other famine conditions existing, but we do not have access to those areas. Right. This is exactly the case that we've been seeing for the last two plus years in Nigeria, in northern Nigeria. Our teams, the community the of food security, community. the international community, has not had access to large areas of Boko Haram controlled territory. Mm -hmm. When we have, over time, been able to enter these areas, we're seeing horrific levels of food insecurity. You know, upwards of 60% of the children are acutely malnourished uh -huh. if there are children left. So that is one of the major regions Nigeria is on the list. There are still large areas that are not accessible, and it is mostly thought that, that the risk of famine is very, very high in northern Nigeria, especially as the lean season comes on board. The situation in Yemen bears a little bit of discussion as well, because that's now cited as the country that is facing the worst food insecurity in the world. The number of, of people in need of, of emergency food assistance is 17 million 17 people million. In, in Yemen mm -hmm. um, right now. And when you say emergency food assistance, is that special high-nutrient products? What it really means is that without the delivery of some sort of uh, assistance, uh, food or some sort of voucher, you know, mm -hmm. to allow them to purchase food, they would not be able to meet their daily requirements necessary for a family to survive. So that's 17 million people in Yemen, which has a population of about 27 million, so more than half the population. At present, we are reaching through the World Food Program and our NGO partners as a global community about 8 million people. So there are still a large group of people that are not being met. Another reason why Yemen deserves further look is Yemen is a country that imports 90% of its food. Right. Traditional food security approaches of trying to build agriculturally based sustainable operations is, is not what we can do in Yemen. Because they don't have any water in Yemen. Exactly correct. And so what we have is a very large, vulnerable group completely dependent upon the commercial sector to function. Right. And I think that Yemen is one of the best examples of when you have conflict raging over time, you see a breakdown of these agricultural as well as these commercial markets, mm -hmm. which leads to the destruction and degradation of a given population. And your more vulnerable elements of any population are gonna be the first to feel that. And in Yemen now, the vulnerable elements of population make up the majority of the whole population. And so our approach in Yemen right now is to ensure access to both the commercial markets as well as the humanitarian. So let me ask about that. In a case like Yemen, where food security is not dependent on people being able to grow their own food, it's dependent on the ability of commercial markets to import food. And then you have conflict which disrupts those markets, which destroys the infrastructure like cranes at ports, the infrastructure to unload food at ports or through land corridors as well. In addition to just trying to meet the immediate need for food so people don't starve, is there a strategy around reestablishing those commercial supply chains? Most assuredly so. And I think you hit it on the head. Each crisis is going to have its individual approach on how USAID Food for Peace, as well as the international community, comes together. In Yemen, the commercial sector 
is most definitely dominating how we try to address that situation. USAID with the World Food Program just brought in four additional cranes to the port of Yemen to ensure the throughput of the port of Hodeidah continues mm -hmm. and to increase that throughput so that not just the humanitarian food that's coming in, but the ever needed and very, very crucial commercial sector continues to right. advance through that port. That is incredibly crucial because, as any of the operators in Yemen right now will say, the humanitarian engine cannot feed Yemen. There is no way that from a humanitarian basis we can do this. We need the muscle and the strength of the commercial sector to make this happen. Right. Matt, we've framed the issue of food insecurity. I know that it's more than just hunger. What additional risks do you see and do you address through your programs that are not specific to hunger, but that are part of a response to food insecurity? There are very close to 20 million people on the verge of famine, but there's also 800 million people in the world who are food insecure. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at those too. The adage is, you know, a hungry person is an angry person, mm -hmm. is a susceptible person. So the idea of trying to address that to build a more stable situation so that we aren't having these people susceptible to extremist elements. This is good for the United States. This is good for the world. This so that's a security perspective. Most definitely a security perspective. But then chronic malnutrition is really one of the leading causes of, of poor health, which impacts productivity, which impacts learning, which impacts the idea that you're going to have a productive citizen. It actually robs a country and the citizens of the country of opportunity. And advancement. Food security and the idea of healthy, food-secure people is a fundamental aspect of having a stable country that is economically viable and increasing over time. And that is a lot of what we do. Mm -hmm. beyond just saving those that are impacted by famine or the threat of famine. Now, I've heard that the U.S. is the largest contributor to meeting humanitarian needs in the world, that the U.S. provides more assistance, not just food assistance, but overall assistance to meet humanitarian needs generated by what you've described as a growing number of crises. How do you assess the overall architecture and effectiveness of the food security coordination amongst the World Food Program, the FAO, the international NGOs, the private sector businesses that are food providers? How has that evolved and what does it look like today? That's a great question. First of all, very much appreciate that you're recognizing that the U.S. government, through offices like USAID Food for Peace, is the world leader on, on the food security front. We dominate through volume and through, through dollar levels the international numbers of reaching those in need. What's the proportion? The basic proportion is that the U.S. government provides about a third of the food security needs in, in the world in the emergency sector, in the humanitarian uh -huh. sector. That is not a third in every situation, but globally, if we were to look right. at it, the U.S. has led, and, and that is very much above the, the rest of the world. Right. As we go forward, I think it is important that the rest of the world, including non-traditional donors that maybe have not given to these types of international responses before, understand the value of why this happens and start actually putting money into these responses. So in terms of what you refer to as non-traditional donors, I assume you're talking about new emerging donor countries like China. China is now the third largest 
bilateral donor in the world behind the U.S. and Japan, and I've heard it's going to overtake Japan maybe this year. Are they very active in the humanitarian sphere? Given those levels, they are not very active in the humanitarian sphere. And are, are there efforts ongoing to try to bring them into food security coordination? There are. There are efforts both, I think, from our offices in USAID, as well as some through the UN itself. The World Food Program, for example, right. has recently opened up an office in China to be able to help explain to the Chinese government the importance of what they do and how a more stable situation globally actually promotes trade for all countries. It is hoped that through these efforts, we can explain and further educate Chinese as well as other governments the importance of this. Another big avenue would be how in some of the Middle Eastern countries, you're seeing a more intensive effort to get them involved, again, away from just bilateral, but also to understand the importance of an NGO and UN-led combined approach. So there is a lot of bilateral assistance that is not captured or even known about as we mount these crises. And and I think bringing in greater coordination on that level and a a deeper understanding of, let's just say, Saudi Arabia or or Qatar, Mm that they they have a role to play and being able to take credit for what they do and the resources that they give and that those resources are given in a more coordinated manner will lead to, I think, a, a more coordinated approach. Your other question on how do we organize or how do we coordinate some of these responses Efforts like the Global Food Security Cluster, which is housed in in different offices within the UN, but is funded by different donors, have proven how important having an on-the-ground field-led coordination structure where the different donors Uh as well as the operators can come together to strategize on how to approach a given situation. The most effective clusters are ones that include a host government element that are able to bring the issues that are affecting the government at that time and to actually give some element of leadership to those clusters as well. These have proven to be very, very effective as we go forward for these large crises. When conflict is present, those normal systems break down and and it impedes the work of humanitarians as well as the commercial sector. Right. What is the role that the private sector plays? And I'm not thinking so much of local operators. I'm thinking more of the large food companies You know, you hear a lot on the development side about private sector engagement, and you hear a lot of statements from private sector leaders about the importance of contributing to social good. It's a huge trend right now. I've seen less with respect to private sector engagement around humanitarian crisis, but you've pointed out the important role of commercial systems in addressing food security. What are you seeing with respect to private sector engagement in humanitarian crises? I totally agree, Patrick, on on your estimation that in the humanitarian assistance realm, there's not a lot of talk or hasn't been traditionally on on from the private sector. We've seen some different examples of that. Uh, Elements of the UN and even NGOs have partnered with, for example, certain delivery contract companies like Federal Express mm-hmm. or, or even UPS or, or even global TNT type organizations to improve their own supply chain or to even piggyback on some of their logistic capacity in right. certain emergency situations. And those are the quick examples a lot of people in, in my community will throw forward. But the, by and large, as these disasters become prolonged, we haven't seen, I think, a real good engagement or relationship between the private sector and what we are doing. It's not enough just to say, oh, a private sector involvement. It's where are the synergies 
that both entities can utilize so that the good actually helps on both sides. Right, so right. so it, it's a different way of approaching it internally to USAID. And so towards that goal, USAID is planning in the upcoming months a humanitarian grand challenge focused to bring in the private sector to help us develop those innovative solutions in the humanitarian assistance realm. That's really interesting, and it makes me think about what's new in addressing food security needs in crisis conditions. So that would be one example of new approaches to engaging the private sector in addressing crisis. So you've been at this for almost 20 years. Over that period of time, is technology impacting the way we address food security issues in crisis? Are there new approaches that we're using in terms of data analytics or how we use information? I think most definitely, and especially on behalf of Food for Peace as an office. What we've seen over the last eight years is the transformation of an office with only one major tool, that being in-kind food assistance, basically buying food from U.S. farmers and putting them primarily on U.S. ships to address an emergency situation and also in, in, in the development setting. What we have seen over the past eight years is the inclusion of cash resources or a more a market-based approach. We've had new tools through Congress and through different changes of some of our legislation, as well as additional resources from other elements of Congress that have enabled Food for Peace, especially, to be able to buy food locally or, mm -hmm. or enable our partners to buy food locally or even to develop voucher systems for those affected by conflict or in a food insecurity situation to access local markets, and in even in certain cases also just a cash distribution. So those are major developments, and I know there was a huge policy debate in the U.S. around allowing purchases in local countries or even in the region versus using surplus U.S. food. Congress has given USCID Food for Peace a different funding stream, similar to regular disaster assistance money, right. which is what we use, and that is all primarily for local purchase or for a voucher type okay, program. Okay, so that's a, that's a huge reform with well, respect to how the U.S. operates. Very much. But the innovative side of this, I think, has been a global understanding that we need to have a much deeper understanding of the existing market conditions in these conflict mm -hmm. situations. Mm -hmm. and, well, and that ties into using private sector channels. So if you're giving vouchers to access local markets, you're reinforcing a private sector solution. Exactly, and, and being able to understand that, that in, in many of these settings, a one type approach is probably not sufficient uh -huh. to address the problem you're trying to fix. Uh -huh. But we have learned how to use mobile phones and be able to rapidly set up cash distribution type programs or to enable mobile vouchers so that an affected community that has a functional market still existing can very quickly access resources to be able to protect their food security. So you're using mobile money? We're using mobile money. We are using global financial institutions to open up banking accounts to places that don't even have a, a banking infrastructure. Uh -huh. In many ways, the humanitarian situation is creating more of the utilization of these modern tools in places that normally would not have access to that. So one of my memories from working in refugee camps was distributing food 
attitude and trying to have a system in place where we could identify who had received food. They had wristbands at one point. Uh, they would dip their fingers in ink at another time. And now I've read about the use of biometrics, but I've also read about controversy. What's, what's your thinking about that? I think first it's incredibly impressive to acknowledge that in some of the most dynamic conflict and displacement situations, our international partners, NGOs and the UN, can set up a system that can read the retina of an intended beneficiary to ensure all the effort to identify those in need, that those that we have targeted are the ones that are receiving that aid. When you go out and find the people who are in need, who fit your criteria, they are going to utilize those resources that are transferred in the way that it is intended, and we're going to have less leakage in all of that. So it's incredibly important that we do have these measures. The debate that you talk about is now we've got these institutions that have traditionally not had such levels of data on very vulnerable groups of people. Right. And we have been talking about that very openly in forums. And I uh -huh. think that elements of the UN and the NGOs have been very good at putting in protocols and protections of these databases. I think when it first started, let's say, you know, five or six years ago, the emphasis was just getting the tools in place to be able to ensure the person who we're targeting is the person that they are. And there was a lot of buzz on just utilizing this technology quickly. I think in the last couple of years, you've seen a real understanding on behalf of our implementing partners of the importance of this data and how mm -hmm. to protect it. I definitely think that the community has risen to the challenge to adopt and even further develop some of these tools. I also think that there's still a lot of work left to do. There are other tools out there that the humanitarian community needs to adopt to ensure that we are on the cutting edge. The famine early warning system, yeah. FuseNet, which mm -hmm. has been a cutting edge example of being able to look at all the data that's out there in the world through satellite imagery, through market-based interviews of, of teams on the ground, to nutritional data, bringing that all together to be able to forecast events. Um, this is a tool that we have honed over 30 years here right. at USAID. Food for Peace is the funder of this. And what it has allowed us to do is to harness different U.S. government agencies, take cutting-edge science and data, turn that into a formula to be able to, with growing levels of confidence, say in six months we are going to have a severe food security situation in a given country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what we saw in the El Nino situation uh -huh. of 2016. We saw it coming, and, and the FuseNet data analysis and the informational products that USAID Food for Peace pushed out really changed the dynamic. What Food for Peace did with that information is we put over 600,000 tons of commodity on ships to Southern Africa, primarily to Ethiopia, because we knew that this was coming. And the impact of the El Nino drought on Ethiopia in 2016 was greatly reduced. We were able to get in front of it. The other major reason why this drought did not have as much impact as, let's say, in 1984, when actually the drought was mm -hmm. not as severe. But the major, another major reason besides our fast action was the capacity of the Ethiopian government, uh -huh. was the fact that we as the international community led by USAID and, and Food for Peace over the last 20 years have been building the capacity of the government and these communities to withstand this shock. So when it did come, 
even though the scale was larger than in 84, the amount of those impacted and the amount of those that, that suffered was less than in 84 because we had this resilient system built up and quite frankly because the Ethiopian government themselves came right. in with over 700 million of their own resources to, in a sense, combine together to have that collaboration right. from the international community and Ethiopia to address the situation. So that's a great example of resilience. We talk a right. lot about resilience. They're putting their own resources and that they're matching that with with partnership with the international community and the result is that the impact of a potentially devastating humanitarian crisis is much much less is actually mitigated which brings us to why we are so concerned about what we see in the world right now mm -hmm. for resilience to to be achieved at that scale you you need government and you need the longer-term investments that are in place there. And what we see right now is due, again, primarily to conflict, is that all of those systems are breaking down. Right. And to be able to address that, humanitarian assistance can only do so much. We need more stability brought in through bringing the political and diplomatic forces to bear in these situations. It used to be that the humanitarian assistance machine architecture was built on responding to climactic or natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And we prided ourselves, you know, within 24, 48 hours, we're going to have a team on the ground, we're going to be working with people there, and we're going to save lives immediately. After six months, you know, we had, in a sense, done what we were going to do, we're going to pass this off, hopefully, and, 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 and we can start the rebuilding process. And that marked, I would say, a good decade and a half of development of, of this tool. And that was, I would say, 80% of what, what the humanitarian assistance was, was just geared towards the humanitarian, you know, natural disaster response. Right. Now what we're seeing, in, in literally in a, in a four to five year period, is a complete reversal. What we're seeing is 80% of what the community does are these longer term engagements due to conflict. Mm -hmm. So we're going in and, and instead of having this ramp down, the whole community has been having to operate for three, four, even five years in these situations. So you're burning out your humanitarian engine, your humanitarian right. framework, because it's really not designed to, well, to do that for that long. It's a chronic situation. And it's become a chronic situation, but we're still in many instances trying to treat it as a humanitarian band-aid. Right. And what we've realized and figured out, and I, I echo the voices of people I have heard in the field, in Somalia, in elements of Yemen, in the Syria conflict is, we can't do this anymore. We've reached our, our point. We need the, the higher level diplomatic engagement to come in here and fix this problem. We are not going to humanitarian assistance our way out of this right. situation. Right. And I think that's one of the bigger messages that we want to see going forward from this is we are seeing global trends going downward. We're seeing us adopting on the humanitarian side new approaches, new strategies to try and, and alleviate and address some of these concerns. But that's only going to get us so far. But there are limits. There, there are, are limits, limits to, to what can be accomplished with humanitarian assistance. And that in the long term, the real solutions lie in diplomacy and in reconciliation and in approaches that support stabilization so communities themselves can reconstitute themselves. Exactly correct. So looking at the current year 2018, what do you see as the big challenges that you'll be facing? 
But as I look at the unprecedented level of need that we had in 2017, as we transition into 18, I am not confident that we're, we're trending in the, in, a, in the right direction. The conflicts are definitely continuing to rage, and there is still high levels of food insecurity on top of that. In addition to all of this, what we're seeing in now almost every country, I think, in Africa, is the onset of fall army worm. What is fall army worm? So this is a pestilence. This is a pest that actually is prevalent in, in other countries of the world, which has now established a foothold in Africa. It's not indigenous to Africa. It is not so indigenous it's... to Africa, and it is highly, highly destructive to the maize and grain crops of countries around the region. To the staple crops. To the staple crops uh, around the region. The international community is beginning to mobilize. USAID has set up a task force to be able to look at this. We're already seeing certain countries, Malawi for instance, just issued a disaster declaration in the whole of Malawi because of the impacts on the crop season. As we as a community look at this, this is one of those where we're going to need high levels of coordination and cooperation between implementers as well as host governments. Again, one silver bullet is not going to be enough. We're going to need cooperation on utilization of pesticides as well as bio crops to resist. This could lead to drastic reduction of available food in the region that needs it most. Is it, is it centered in Southern Africa? It has been in Western Africa and Eastern Africa and Southern Africa and some of the breadbaskets areas of Uganda. What's incredibly scary to the experts, to people at the Food and Agriculture Organization as well as some of our, our team in USAID, is how fast this has spread across Africa. Wow. And because it is not indigenous or it is not something that Africa is used to, the impact of this could be incredibly severe. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for sharing your perspective and giving this view of both the challenges of food insecurity in crisis situations in the way the U.S. government and the broader international community are responding to those challenges. Patrick, I really want to say thank you for allowing me the, the opportunity to sit down and talk with you about these things. What we do is important, and, and being able to, to express that, that passion you know, makes me happy. So Yeah, thank you well, for it's that heartening to me. It's heartening to me to hear um, people who are on the front line, like you, who bring passion to the work, because that makes the difference. And thank you again to our listeners, both new listeners and returning listeners. I hope you enjoyed this discussion today. Send us your comments on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes of A Deeper Look, both from this season and from last season where we were dealing with the Sustainable Development Goals. And stay tuned. Throughout this year, we'll continue to explore pressing issues related to crisis response. Join us next month for another conversation.